about Christmas is the music uh, that is around this season. I love the old classic hymns. I love contemporary Christmas songs like that one. And uh, out of all the contemporary Christmas songs, that is probably one of my favorites. And uh, one of those that I can just honestly just close my eyes and just be overwhelmed by the power and the beauty of it. And uh, I, I've been preparing for this week. I probably listened to that song 30 times, and every single time it has that same effect on me. And uh, just being able to just stop and really kind of get lost in, in this moment of worship. And uh, it's not just Lauren Daigle's voice, but she has a beautiful voice that fits that song beautifully. But it's really the lyrics of that song to me, that make it so beautiful. And many of you may know that the word Noel is a French word. Uh, it, it is the word they use for Christmas. But even before it was used for Christmas, um, it really was the uh, word of good news. It was really meant as a celebration. Um, and so it was often used for a birth or for a birthday. And so it makes it the perfect word for Christmas uh, because Christmas is just that, is the celebration of a birth that brings good news to everybody. And this good news uh, because of what God has done. It's good news because of this story of His amazing love, this beautiful love story that started long before the world was ever created. And it's been building and building and building and building for thousands of years until it reaches this climax, until it reaches this point where love becomes incarnate, until love is encapsulated in this physical body of this baby that was born on Christmas morning. So since we believe the words of God, in First John, where it says God is love, and we also believe that Jesus is love, we come to Christmas not just as the incarnation of God, but really the incarnation of all His characteristics, of who He is. And so we see Christmas as really the incarnation of love itself. And this morning we're going to be in Psalm 25, and again another song that kind of points us to Christ. And so we're going to see this incarnated love of God. And this, what is it that this looks like? What is divine love look like. And so we're going to discover that as Psalm, as David writes this Psalm, he, he's in picturing, he's in pointing us to this embodiment of God's love, which is really Christ Jesus from the beginning. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn into Psalm 25. We'll just read part of that, uh, starting in verse 4 and down through verse 10. But Psalm 25, verse 4 says, make your ways known to me, Lord, and teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. I wait for you all day long. Remember, Lord, your compassion and your faithful love, for they have existed from antiquity. Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion. In keeping with your faithful love, remember me because of your goodness, Lord. The Lord is good and upright. Therefore, he shows sinners the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches them His way. All the Lord's ways show faithful love and truth to those who keep His covenant and decrees. Let's pray together. God, we are so thankful for what You have done. God, this story of amazing love. And God, I pray that as we work through this text, as we work through the season of, of Christmas, this season of Advent, God, I pray that we always come back to what you have done. God, that we come back to Noel, this beautiful celebration of a birth that is good news to all the world. And so, God, I pray this morning through this text that you will remind us of your amazing love for us. God, that you will remind us what it looked like to be in your character, what it looked like to feel your love for us in a tangible way, God. 
And so, God, I pray that you will speak to us this morning through your word. I pray, God, that you will speak to our hearts. And, God, I pray that we will just sit and listen. And, God, for some of us, I pray that we are so overwhelmed by your grace and your mercy, by this amazing love story that you've been writing for thousands of years. God, I pray that we are reminded that love is not distant, but love is close and it is here with us. And so, God, I pray that you speak. God, I pray that we wait for you all the day long, ready to hear every word that you have for us. Father, in Christ's name we pray. Amen. When I was a kid, I was like most other kids growing up in Stokes County that I loved to play sports. And I played baseball, I played basketball, I played football, and I was really too short and too small to play all of those sports, but I gave it a shot anyway. And I finally found a sport that I somewhat fit into, and it was soccer. And I loved playing soccer, and I played it uh, since I was little, and uh, I played for several years as a kid, and then I got a chance to try out for the high school team. And my very first year, of trying out for the high school soccer team. The, the team had just gotten a brand new coach. This brand new guy had never been in the school. He'd never been a coach there before. They just brought him in. And um, we found out really quick this guy was really intense. He, he was serious about soccer um, and about uh, just us being on that field. And so he started off our very first practice. And by the way, to put you in context, this was in the days, this is, I'm going to date myself, this is the days before we had such thing as heat delays, okay? There was no thing like it was hot and so you can't practice until after six o'clock like it is now right if it was hot you just sweated and you kept going that, that's the way we practice and so we started practice august 1st that was our first day of tryouts and this man shows up in our very first practice and he said all of you get on the line and if you've ever played any sports those are the words that strike fear into every player's hearts because you know that means you're getting ready to run a whole lot so we started our very first practice. We stretched, and then we got online, and we started very first with sprints. And for three hours, we had practice for three hours that day. We maybe touched the ball maybe 30 minutes, if that, in those three hours. The rest of it was all running and conditioning. And, and, and this guy, we learned real quick that he was intense, but he wasn't just intense about conditioning in, in the physical aspect. He was just an intense person because as soon as he blew the whistle for you to take off running, he started yelling. And he yelled from the time you, he blew that whistle until the last person crossed the finish line. Whatever the race was, whatever the sprint was, even whatever it was, he started yelling. He yelled and he screamed the whole time, even in those three hours. I don't know how he had a voice after that, but th he just yelled constantly the whole time. And so after about three weeks of practice, we were, we were in really good shape for our very first scrimmage game. And so we got out there for our first scrimmage game, and uh, it was just a, kind of a warm-up to our season. But we got out there, man, we were in such good shape because he'd ran the snot out of us for the last three weeks. But we were terrible at ball control, and we were terrible at passing the ball. We were terrible at, at working together as a team because... We didn't work on that stuff. We just ran and ran and ran and ran. And so, as you can imagine, with the guy that's this intense, he gladly let us know from the sidelines during the whole game how terrible we were. And he gladly let us know after the game how terrible we were. And even the next day at practice, he gladly let us know yet again how terrible we were. And he was relentless, and he just yelled and yelled and yelled and screamed at us. But fortunately for me, that year I was only a freshman. Which, by default, mean I wasn't good, I wasn't big, and I was, so I was put on the JV team. And I say fortunately for me, because the JV team had a different coach. 
And this coach was, was very different. He had a very different coaching philosophy uh, than the head coach. And, and so this coach, he yelled at us, but only when we deserved it. All right. So if, you're, if you've ever been on team, you know there's times when you deserve to be yelled at, when you know you're doing something you shouldn't or you're not listening. And so Coach Sands, he yelled at us, but only when we deserved it. Right? He never yelled at us for making a mistake for something we didn't know. And Coach Sands was always different than the head coach because Coach Sands, I remember every single day at practice, he was on the field with us. And he was standing close to us. And if he saw you make a mistake or he saw something you could do better, instead of yelling at you and screaming at you from a sideline and, and everybody else's attention on you, he pulled you off to the side and he took you over and he said, all right, let me show you this. And off to the side, he would tell you how to angle your body, how to plant your foot so you get more power, you can control your shot better, whatever it is that you were, you were supposed to be working on. And so... This was this guy's coaching philosophy that, that you gave direction and you gave uh, guidance. And so he was always pulling people aside. He was always working on this. And he was always there. And when it came to kind of game formations, I remember him stepping on the field and putting us all in the places we were supposed to be. And he literally stood on the field and he looked at this guy and he said, all right, you, this is your job and this is where you go. And this is your job and this is where you go. And he stood right in the midst of all of us and gave every one of us individual instructions with the idea that, hey, you better pay attention when he's talking to this guy because someday you may be playing that position as well but he stood right in the midst of us and he gave us all this instruction right there when he was close to us he gave us all this direction and guidance right there while he was close to us and as our, our season went on the JV team and the varsity team really became very different you see the JV team we started to improve and we started to actually win games and at the end of our season our record looked a whole lot better than the varsity team you see, our JV team actually had people that came back to play the next year because we didn't have this guy who just yelled and screamed at us and punished us for the whole time. You see, Coach Sands, he had this idea that when you coach somebody, you offer them direction and guidance. You, you respect them as a player. You respect the game. And so this is what Coach Sands did. He, he loved us as players. He loved us as a team. And I'll be honest with you, we never felt loved or respected or anything from the head coach because we never got any guidance or direction from from him. You see, for us, Coach Sands demonstrated the first aspect of the incarnate love that David points us to in, in chapter 25 of Psalms, that incarnate love always offers direction and guidance. You see, it doesn't just leave you on the field to figure it out on your own. It doesn't stand off the distance and yell at you. You see, incarnate love tells you this is what you need to do. This is the direction you need to go in, and it walks with you, and it guides you down the right path. You see, in verse 4, David calls out for this kind of incarnate love. In verse 4, he says, calling out to God or praying to God or singing to God, he says in verse 4, Make your ways known to me, Lord, and teach me your paths. You see, in Hebrew, there's a couple of different words for teach. And one of the words for teaching is, and they both have the idea of giving instruction, right? So both the Hebrew words for teaching have the same idea that you're delivering instruction, you're delivering guidance, but it's really the method that is different in these two words. You see, one of the words in Hebrew about giving instructions is related to being able to throw or cast something, right? It could even be used for archery, right? So when you use that word, it is kind of like what I'm doing with you right now, that I can be standing here and yet giving instruction to you over over there, right? It allows a teacher to be in one spot and a student to be in another, 
and information to be sent from one to another, right? So there can be this separation between the teacher and the student, right? But that's not the word that he uses in this psalm. You see, he uses the other Hebrew word uh, for teach, and the other Hebrew word um, really has to do with kind of a, a, a goading of an animal. Now, some of you may know what that word, goad an animal, means. Some of you have no idea. But to goad an animal or to nudge an animal is simply that. That you push them to make them go in the direction you want, right? So if you we got to think that this is before tractors and all that stuff, right? So if you had an ox that was plowing a field or a horse or whatever it was that you were plowing a field with, and, and you would walk beside him, and literally you had a, a stick, right? And what you want to do is you'd put your hand on him because his natural tendency is to get over into the dirt that he's already plowed because that's easier to do. It's easier to plow dirt that's already been plowed versus the hard stuff. So his natural tendency is to go towards what's already been done. And so you, as the farmer, you guide him, you goad him, means you literally you start off by putting your hand on his side, and you literally just kind of nudge him in the direction you want him to go. And now, obviously, an ox and a, a horse or whatever it is you're plowing with, he, he may not even respond to that. So then you have a stick, and this stick is not necessarily for beating him. This stick is literally, then you use your full body, and you push him against, against him that way. And if he still doesn't go in the direction you want him, then you turn the stick so that you use the end of the stick, and you push him with that end of the stick. Now, your goal is not to hurt him. Your goal is simply to make him uncomfortable enough that he doesn't like going this way anymore. Now he wants to go this way because there's something pushing on his side. But I want you to understand the point is not that we're plowing a field. The point is the person that is instructing that, the person that's guiding that, has to be right beside that animal. This isn't something you can do from a distance. This isn't something you can send out or, or cast away. If you're going to guide an animal, if you're going to teach an animal, if you're going to instruct an animal this way, you've got to be right beside them. You've got to be walking with them almost every single step of the way. You, you can't yell directions at them. You can't yell instructions at them. You've got to be right there beside them, close enough that you can reach out and you can touch them. And so this is the word that David uses in this psalm. This is the kind of teaching that he's looking for. He, he's looking for this kind of teaching that's very direct. He's looking for this kind of teaching that's very personal and it requires this closeness between the teacher and the student. So he uses his word not only in verse 4, but he also uses the same word in verse 5. And then he adds a little extra emphasis in verse 5 to this closeness that he's looking for. In verse 5, he says, Guide me in your truth and teach me. There's that word again. For you are the God of my salvation, and I wait for you all day long. Right? So not only does he use that same word, teach, for closeness there, but he uses this word, guide. Right? And, and for guiding, the, the picture in your mind should be of a, a dad or a teacher, in this case, going in front of a student, but not in a far way, close enough that, that they can literally reach back and make sure that student is right there with them. Right? So if you think, if you ever, uh, I grew up coon hunting, right? and some of you know that, and so we would get through, uh, we'd be out in the middle of the woods, and all of a sudden we'd walk into a huge thicket. Right? Some of you know what a thicket is, some of you don't. Right? A thicket is where all this brush grows and it's real tight and it's hard to get through there. And the way we would make it through there would be my dad would go first right? because he was the biggest. Right? So he would go first and then me being this little guy would have to follow in his footsteps. Well, dad was taller and bigger and he could step over things that I couldn't do. Right? So my job was to stay right on his heels. And so as he's pushing his way and making us through this thicket, he's constantly kind of reaching back and making sure that I'm right there. So if I fall, he's got me. 
That's the picture of guiding that David is using. Okay, So it's not leading from a distance. It is leading literally right there that you can reach back and you can grab hands or grab hold of whoever is right behind you. There's this closeness, that this, this, this connection between the, the teacher, in this case, and the student. And so this is what he's using. This is what he's telling him. He's looking for God being able to reach back, being that close to him. And so these words really is that David is praying for direction and guidance, but he doesn't want it to come from a far distance. He's not looking for God to stay up in heaven and, and pronounce stuff to him. He's got the books, right? He's got the Old Testament. Moses, or part of the Old Testament, Moses has already written the laws. So he's not looking for these instructions to come down from heaven. What he's looking for and praying for is this closeness between God, the teacher, and himself as a student. He's praying that God will walk along with him and instruct him and guide him in this very close personal way. And really this way that requires God to be with us us. Not away from us, but with us, to dwell with us. And, and what he's waiting for, as well as what he's looking forward to, what he's willing to wait for, is this is Christmas. This is exactly what the incarnation does. It allows God to teach us and to guide us in this very close and personal way. It allows him to, to physically walk this earth right beside us to give us direction and to give us guidance in the way that we need it. This direction and guidance that we can see and we can feel his love in this very tangible, personal way. You see, the incarnate love of Christ isn't, love, isn't a love from far away. It's, an, it's a love that guides you and directs you. It's a love that, that guides you and it goads you. It's a love that walks along beside you and nudges you. And I'm going to be honest with you, sometimes the nudging and the pushing, it's uncomfortable. But it's what's best for us. You see, an ox is never going to finish plowing a field if he just keeps plowing the same ground over and over and over again. If you want that job done, sometimes you've got to make the ox a little uncomfortable to do it. And so what he's telling you is this, sometimes this nudging and pushing in this direction that God's going to give you, don't think it's always going to be comfortable and easy, but it's going to be best. And so the incarnate love of God allows him and brings him close to us so that he can achieve this teaching, this guiding in a way that is impossible to achieve any other way. And one of the things that the incarnate love teaches us is what compassion and kindness really looks like. This is the second aspect of incarnate love that David points out in Psalm 25 is, is the kindness and compassion. And you see, the incarnate love will always show you the true nature and the true character of God himself. So when you look at Christ and you see what Christ does, that is what God is. That's what God does. Right? So you want to know what God does or what God thinks or what God would do in a situation? Look to see what Christ does in that situation. So in verse 6, God or David reminds us and really asks God to remember two of his characteristics, two things that really define him. This is his nature. And so look in verse 6. David says, Remember, Lord... Your compassion and your faithful love, for they have existed from antiquity. Compassion and faithful love. These two ideas carry, uh, they carry this idea of tender kindness, of, of doing something for someone who cannot do for themselves. Caring for someone who can't care for themselves. Or giving something to someone who can't get it on their own, or they can't earn it, or they don't deserve it. Right? And so really this word compassion that he uses in verse 6, it's a beautiful word, because sometimes it's used to describe the womb of a lady. Right? Now I want you to think about how this works for a moment, because the, the womb protects and it provides everything that a child needs. And yet the child does nothing to earn it or deserve it. Right? The child doesn't have to come out of the womb, go get a job, and get back in the womb to be fed by the womb. It's just there. 
Right? And it doesn't do anything to, to build the womb. It doesn't do anything to secure the womb. It doesn't do anything to benefit the lady whatsoever. It's just there. And, and so the womb protects and it provides for this child in the most vulnerable stages of its life when it's all working together and it's all growing. In these moments that it needs the most protection, these moments that it needs the most nourishment, and all this was working, this is what the womb does. It gives and it protects, not because it's gaining anything, just simply because that's what it does. That, that's its nature. You see, this is the characteristic of God, that it just, He just gives and He just protects, not because He's looking to earn something from you, not because you have anything to offer Him, just because this is His nature. This is the characteristic of God, and it has always existed. As David said at the end of verse 6, His compassion and His faithful love have existed from antiquity. They've existed from all eternity past, and they'll exist for all eternity future, since God has existed from ever and ever and ever. His compassion and his faithful love has also existed that way and so the story of his compassion is not new for us but it's something we see and we fully understand in his incarnation that we see his grace in ways that we've seen lived out and never before you see his whole life of christ is all about grace and all about compassion Many of you know the Christmas story that you read, the Christmas story that we know about the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, the one you hear on the Charlie Brown Christmas story, that comes from Luke chapter 2, right? But even before his birth, in Luke chapter 1, there's this prophecy, there's this man named Zechariah who's actually kind of Jesus' uncle, he's John the Baptist's father, um, and you can go back and read all that story, but he, he's, he's got this, this prophecy about the one that's coming, in Luke chapter 1 Verse 79 or 78 and 79, Zechariah says this, Because of God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high has visited us. And then in verse 79, To shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. The dawn is referring to the light that Christ is bringing to shine on us. It's the reason we light candles here to remind us of this light. But I want you to notice that this light is coming, and it didn't come because we held up a candle. It didn't come because we lit something. It didn't come because we earned it or it didn't come because we deserved it. I want you to know how he describes us in this verse. We are living in darkness and the shadow of death. What he's telling us is that you are hopeless and you are helpless on your own. You are like that child in a womb and you are totally dependent on someone else. The compassion of someone else. Because without it, we are doomed. That there is nothing we can do to help ourselves. That death is there. The destruction and darkness is there. And so Christ comes because of God's grace and because of His compassion and because of His faithful love for us. And then if you read the story of his life, if you go through, you see this nature lived out over and over and over again. As you read the Gospels, whether it be Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you hear these phrases that repeats itself, that he felt compassion on a crowd. Some of you don't realize the reason he fed the 5,000 men was because he'd been teaching them. And all of a sudden the, the day was drawing at the end and they hadn't eaten anything. And it says that he was, felt compassion for them. And so then he does something amazing for them because his heart is moved for them. He wants to do something for them, not because they earned it or deserved it, simply because this is who he is. There's another passage that says that, that he was moved with compassion and he healed those that were blind. 
See, this is the characteristic of God. He's always giving. He's always kind. He's always compassionate. That Christ is the incarnation of God's compassion and His faithful love. And every aspect of His life is an example of that. This is what the incarnate love looks like. And this is what God's love does when it dwells with us. It gives and it gives and it gives. And it never expects return on its giving. It never demands that if you do this, then I will give for you. See, the incarnate love is constantly healing. It's constantly feeding the hunger. It's constantly raising the dead. And it's constantly offering this guidance and direction to anybody who's willing to receive it. Not because you deserved it, not because you earned it, but simply because this is the nature of God. And and Christ demonstrates that to us. See, grace abounds in the incarnate love of Christ. And so when we have the incarnate love of Christ, we have direction and we have guidance, we have compassion, and we have kindness. But we also get probably one of the most greatest things ever. We get forgiveness and mercy. You see, but forgiveness and mercy in this passage is really achieved in a way that never works out in a human relationship. But it only works out in this divine incarnate love of Christ. Let me tell you, let me show you what I mean. When, when, when a couple comes to me and they're so excited, they're getting ready to get married, and so they're starting to plan their wedding and all that, one of my requirements, I tell everybody here, I've told you several times, one of my requirements is if I'm going to do your wedding, we're going to have premarital counseling. We're going to work through some things beforehand. And something I've always done, and um, I, my mom, after my dad passed away, she got remarried, and that was real fun, doing premarital counseling with my mom there, all right? And so her and her new husband had been married uh, to their spouses, obviously, longer than I had been alive. And so here are these two people who together had been married separately for like 90 years. And yet I've got to tell them how to build a marriage, right? So anyway... We, we sit, down with these, uh, sit down with these couples and we cover all different topics, all the different subjects. And, and one of the subjects that I get to is, is how, do, how do you deal with conflict? How do you deal with disagreement? When you guys, when you feel like one of you has, has wronged the other or when you feel like uh, th- that something is not right, when you're mad at each other, how do you deal with that, right? Now, I've got some couples that come, they sit in my office and they're so cutesy and lovesy, and they just love each other. And so I get to this point in the conversation, and they're just like, oh, well, we never disagree. Oh, we just love each other so much, we, we can't even imagine what that would look like. And right then, I just get out my calendar, and I start adding extra sessions to our time together because we got a lot of work to do, all right? Because the truth is that, that somebody's lying. Either you're lying to each other or you're lying to yourself. But somebody's not being honest. Either that or you just literally met when you walked in my office. Because if you've been in a relationship for any time, you're going to have disagreements. You're going to have arguments. You're going to have times when, when, you, when you're not understanding or, or you're disagreeing. You think somebody's done you wrong. Those things happen. And so the, when you have these, these groups, uh, we just have to work through some more stuff. But, but fortunately, most of the couples that walk in my office and they sit down and they, they, they're willing to admit that, yeah, we, we've had some disagreements and, and there's times when we, we've uh, uh, had some conflict. And, and so then I ask them, well, how do, you, how do you deal with those situations? Because typically folks in, in marriage deal with those conflicts and, and those disagreements in one of two ways. There are folks that need resolution right now, okay? And some of you may be this, and so don't hear judgment in any way, shape, or form in either of these statements because some of you, are, all of you are going to fall into one or two of them, but, but there are folks that they need this resolved. And so, so there's conflict, there's a situation that you've wronged me or I've wronged you, and we're going to fix this. 
And we're not going to bed until this is settled. And we're not leaving this room until this is settled. And we're not going to do anything and anything else until we get this taken care of, until we get this figured out. And if we have to stay up and talk all night long, we're going to do it. Because we got to get this resolved, right? That's some folks' way to deal with conflict. And there's other folks that we call them the sweepers or the stuffers, okay? And, and I'm going to be fully dis, uh, transparent with you. This was the house I grew up in, okay? And so this is how I deal with conflict, right? Uh, us sweepers and stuffers, we don't like conflict. We don't like confrontation. So the reason we're called sweepers and stuffers is because when something comes up that we disagree on, we just lift up the corner of the rug and we just sweep it right underneath that rug. And we lay the rug back down and we just go on about our day like nothing ever happened. Right? And the whole goal, the whole reason we do that is because we're thinking that if we just sweep it under the rug, nobody sees it anymore. And since we don't see it, we don't think about it and we just forget about it. And we're hoping that our spouse does the same thing. Okay? And, and I'm going to be honest with you, and this is your, your couple's therapy for the moment as well. Okay? That, I'm gonna, that never works in a marriage. Okay, and I can tell you that from personal experience and growing up with that and tell you from personal experience and trying to do that myself, because what you really end up doing is you end up just sweeping stuff and sweeping stuff until you really have this mountain in your living room, like this huge hump that's covered over by this rug that all of a sudden it's it's in the way. And eventually you got to deal with that stuff. Okay. But I tell you that not so that this is so much couples therapy, but really this is odd that this doesn't work out in human relationships. It never works out for a long-term marriage. But oddly enough, this is exactly what David is asking God to do in his relationship with him in verse 7. You see, back in verse 6, he's asking God to remember certain things. But in verse 7, he's saying, now don't remember this part. Remember your goodness and your kindness But don't remember this. I want you to see what he says in verse 7. He says, Do not remember the sins of my youth or my acts of rebellion. In keeping with your faithful love, remember me because of your goodness, Lord. You see, the sins of my youth, these are things we do in ignorance. These are things we do before we knew better. These are things we did before we started making conscious choices on our own. These are sins that we we did out of ignorance. And, And so... Then there's, there's these other ones because at some point it's not ignorance anymore. At some points we realize the choices we are making. At some points we realize that, that we are deciding this instead of that. Okay? So at some points our sins of our youth are no longer sins of youth. They're no longer ignorance. And I want you to see how he describes those. And my acts of rebellion. Right? And I bring that up, and we're going to pause here just a moment in text, because one, because this is the text, but two, this is something we need to focus on, because so often we come to this idea of, well, just forget my sins of my youth when I was ignorant, and I, didn't, and I just made little mistakes. And sometimes we, we pin sins down as just these little mistakes, these little faults that we have, these, these little characteristic flaws that we have, and really it's not such a big deal. But did you see how David describes what sin really is? It is an act of rebellion. There's a lot of folks that tell you when they define sin, well, it's it's missing the mark, right? And I'm going to be honest with you, that's a good biblical description of sin if you understand the full context of it, okay? Because when we say sin is missing the mark, it doesn't mean that you were shooting an arrow this way and you just hit the line instead of the bullseye, right? That's not what we really mean by missing the mark in this context, Okay, when we say that sin is missing the mark, it literally means the target is here. The bullseye is there. I'm shooting this way, except I miss the mark doesn't mean I hit that target. It means I literally turned the arrow around and I shot it directly at God himself. 
That's missing the mark. That is what a sin really is. That is an act of rebellion that you are actively fighting against God and fighting against the will and His plan. You are actively trying to go against your Creator. That's what sin really is. It is an act of rebellion. Not just that you barely missed the mark, that you literally shot at God Himself. You see, I bring that up because when we begin to view sin that way, we really begin to understand why it's such a big deal. You see, if it's just a mistake, if it's just an accident... We don't understand why God responds the way He does to sin. We, we start to see it as this act of rebellion. We start to understand why God judges and why He punishes sin the way that He does. We start to better understand why we should be like David in verse 7 and praying, God, I hope you don't remember all the sins that I have done. I hope you don't keep a list of all the times I've turned and instead of shooting at the target, I really shot at you. I really fought against you. I really rebelled against you. God, I'm praying and I'm hoping you don't keep this record of all my sins because if you do, all hope is lost for me. You see, it's not until we see the seriousness of sin that we realize how great His love for us and how great our need for forgiveness really is. See, this is where we become totally dependent on the incarnate love of Christ. You see, every sin, every act of rebellion deserves punishment. And because God is holy and He's righteous, He doesn't just forget. He doesn't just dismiss me. Like, ah, oh, it's all right. Maybe you can try again tomorrow. I don't know if I'm going to let somebody else have an error that turned and shot it at me. I don't know that I'm going to let them have another chance, but God does. In fact, He allows us to, to change and allows us this option. He allows our sins to be paid for and covered over. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, He puts it this way. He says, Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us, and He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This word propitiation is sometimes translated as the atonement. It literally means to cover over. It means that God allows the Jesus' blood to cover over our sins just like that sin or just like that rug covers over all the conflicts in our life that we just sweep underneath them. You see, it never works in a human relationship. This is why it's divine love. This is why it's incarnate love because for some reason God allows this to work that He just sweeps this under the rug and all of a sudden it's gone. That when He looks at you and me, He doesn't see this long list of sins. He doesn't see this long list of rebellions. He doesn't see these, all these things that He's just ready to shoot lightning bolts at us for. What He sees is you. And what He sees is me. Pure and righteous. Holy and acceptable. Not because that's what we are, but simply because everything else has been washed away. Everything else has been covered over. Everything else has been wiped off of our account. And there's the sacrifice for us that He came and He paid for us this debt that we couldn't pay for ourselves. And the incarnate love of God looks like this, that this perfect Savior died a sinner's death to take my place and your place so that all my sins just get swept under the rug. And God doesn't keep a record of them anymore. See, the story of amazing love doesn't end at Christmas. The story of amazing love is that the light of the world was given not to us, but for us. The story of amazing incarnate love is that He was born to suffer and born to save. The story of amazing incarnate love is that He was born to raise us from the grave. And the only way He can do that is because He is the way, the truth, and the life. This passage of Scripture 
that we started in verse 25, or chapter 25, it starts with asking God to be with us, to dwell with us, to guide us and give us direction. And then it takes us through this womb of compassion and kindness and to the mission of Christ's atoning sacrifice. And then it leaves us here with these last few verses coming full circle to appealing to God's nature, really thanking Him for showing us and teaching us as sinners there is this way, there is this truth that brings us back to Him. Why don't you look with me in verse 8 and 9. And you'll notice that the end of these two verses, they end with the exact same word. In verse 8, he says, The Lord is good and righteous. Therefore, He shows sinners the way. And then again in verse 9, he says, He leads the humble to what is right and He teaches them His way. You see, we don't get to decide the way back to Him. We don't get to make our own paths. We get to follow His way. We get to follow the path that He made. We get to follow the path that He's been teaching us and leading us on since the very beginning, since the very first sin. He's been leading us and teaching us to this way. And so the statement that John or Jesus makes in John chapter 14, and I promise you this, that Josh and I didn't compare notes. Josh and I didn't share scripture on this part together, but just a few moments ago when he got up and he said in John chapter 14, verse 6, he's talking to Thomas and he's telling his disciples And he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I'm going to come back and get you. And I'm going to bring you with me so that you can be with me for all of eternity. And then one of the disciples, Thomas, says, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We don't even know where you're going, much less how we're supposed to get there. And then in John chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus tells him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus is the way back to God. And God has been showing sinners and teaching sinners for thousands of years. This incarnate love is necessary because God wants us to be with Him for all eternity. He doesn't want us to spend eternity separated from Him. And so because He loves us so much, He made a way back to Himself. He loved us so much that He took on flesh and He was born in a stable He loved us so much that He died on a cross. And He loved us so much that He went and prepared a place for us. And He's coming back to get us. See, this is the story of amazing love. This is the story of love incarnate, love divine. And this is the reason we sing Noel. Noel, come and see what God has done. This is love incarnate, love divine. Let's pray together.